welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. It's been coming, applauded by some, dreaded by others, and today marks the official end of the federal government's net neutrality rules. Those are the regulations that required broadband providers to offer equal access to all content on the Internet enacted during the Obama administration. Joining me is Brent. Brendan Carr, Commissioner at the FCC. Brendan, if the FCC is notified of service providers blocking, throttling, or pay-to-play deals, what will it do? Well, thanks so much for having me on. You know, consumers are passionate about a free and open Internet, and that doesn't change today with our decision. If a provider does engage in that conduct, as you just described, that's going to remain uh, unlawful today, as it did yesterday before our decision went into place. What shifts is now the Federal Trade Commission, the nation's premier consumer protection agency, will be taking that enforcement action as opposed to the FCC taking the action. Nine states so far have enacted net neutrality laws or governors have signed executive orders, and there's pending legislation in other states. How does a patchwork of rules affect the national picture that the FCC voted for? Well, I think one thing it shows is the tremendous amount of common ground that there actually is here on net neutrality. There's not a lot of disagreement about what the basic rules of the road is. No blocking, no discriminating, no broken promises. Your point also goes to, though, should there be a patchwork of state laws that do that, or should we have one national law? For my part, I would certainly support Congress stepping in and codifying these basic rules of the road that there's really no disagreement about. What we faced at the FCC was something very different, which is this application of this 1930s Title II regime uh, that was used in service of trying to get to those basic rules. So you, you mentioned that you'd, you, know, you would support Congress. The Senate has already passed a resolution to reinstate <laughs> the 2015 rules with bipartisan support. Democrats are less than 50 votes from advancing a resolution in the House. What's your reaction to that? Yes, that's one uh, effort that we're seeing in Congress that I don't support, and here's why. That approach would restore the 2015 Title II-based approach to net neutrality. There's actually other bills that have been introduced in Congress, uh, in particular by some Republicans, that would take those rules, those basic rules of the road that we all agree about, and enshrine those into law. I think that's a better way to go. Let's get those basic consumer protections that there's no real disagreement about in place, but let's not go back to this Title II regulatory regime that imposes a lot of negative consequences in terms of investment and deployment. Well, if you agree about those consumer rules, why didn't the FCC put that into effect when it repealed the 2015 law? Yeah, there's no real, there's not a lot of debate about the rules. What we face at the FCC was, again, there was this Title II regulatory framework that the FCC applied in 2015 for the very first time, and then it used that new authority to hang those very specific rules off of. So what we did was we reversed that decision to apply that broader Title II framework. With that, the rules that were attached to it also went away. And so now there's a question of what's the best way to get that back in terms of authority 
Uh, you can do that through the Federal Trade Commission, or you can do that through Congress passing standalone legislation. But our view is that we didn't have the legal authority to put those rules back in place once we return to a Title I framework. So the FCC is facing a court challenge over whether it had the legal authority to repeal the net neutrality rules. That's by about two dozen state attorneys general, advocacy groups, and industry groups. Where does that stand, and what's your position there? Sure. Yeah, there's a number of legal challenges to that decision, as there were legal challenges to the 2015 decision as well. Uh, Our decision to repeal Title II stands on very firm legal ground. In fact, uh, returning to Title I, that's the only legal framework that the Supreme Court has weighed in on and blessed. When the Commission applied Title I back in the early 2000s, that case went up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court blessed it. So I don't think there's any real issue with our legal authority, but happy to have those court cases play out. Were you surprised that there was such a negative reaction by so many people to your repeal of the net neutrality rules? You know, people are really passionate about it, and I support that. I'm, I'm, I welcome it. I'm glad to see that people participated so robustly in our process. Again, I think the difference is we were faced with a narrow legal question about is Title II right or is Title I right? And I don't think people are as passionate about that distinction. But when it comes to the basic rules of the road, as you note, I think that there is a lot of common ground on those rules of the road. When people fear that those basic protections they've come to live by are about to go away, that they're pretty fired up about it. I think, again, that's just the distinction between Title II and the basic rules of the road that I think are going to continue to stay in place today, tomorrow, and the next day. Are you relying on the various companies to to follow their pledges of not in, engaging in anything that would hurt consumers that we discussed before? So I don't think that we should trust our ISPs to dictate our online experience. I don't think consumers want to be fully subject to the whims of the ISP. And we're not. We're not going to that regime. So if an ISP, for instance, enters into an agreement to act in unfairly or a non-neutral way by discriminating in favor of an affiliated or unaffiliated provider, that's going to be per se a violation of Section 1 of the Sherman Act. So no, we're not relying purely on the good graces of an ISP. (laughs) And no, we're not relying purely on the disclosures, although those are enforceable. There's additional consumer protections that are in place as well. We have just about 15 seconds here. What would you say to consumers who are worried? I hear you. I understand that there's a lot of concern out there, and it's really been uh, the fears of flame have been fanned fanned by some misinformation. The fact is you're going to continue to be protected online. You're not at the whim of your ISP. Strong consumer protections remain in place. Thank you so much. That's Brendan Carr, Commissioner at the FCC. The Supreme Court upheld Ohio's aggressive voter purging law today by a narrow 5-4 to vote along partisan lines. Joining me is Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. Greg, what did the court decide specifically? Hi, June. What what the court decided was that uh, this procedure that Ohio uses didn't violate a 1993 law that's colloquially known as the Motor Voter Law. That law says uh, states should try to eliminate people off their voter rolls if, if, they're, if they've moved or, or if they shouldn't be on there, but they can't remove people just because they didn't vote. And the Supreme Court looked at Ohio's procedure, which basically involves uh, you, if you don't vote one time, they send you a postcard saying, hey, do you still live? 
live here, and if you don't return that postcard and don't, then don't vote a couple more times, they will remove you. And the Supreme Court said that was not um, removing somebody from the, data, from the voter database just because they didn't vote. So what is the history of this? So the history of it is, is this 1993 law was designed to basically make it easier for people uh, to, to register to vote, uh, but also to uh, encourage states to take some steps to clean up their databases so that uh, the people who, who, so who want to vote can vote and, and uh, uh, people who aren't supposed to vote don't vote. And that, that law, like a lot of laws, had some provisions that sort of cut both ways, and it was, trying to, it was the court trying to figure out uh, how that applied to this Ohio procedure. So the liberal justices here voted as a block in dissent. What was the dissent focused on? So there were two two dissents, and Justice Stephen Breyer's dissent, which which was written for all four of them, was was kind of technically focused on the language of the the 1993 federal law, and and whether Ohio violated it. And he uh, essentially said, look, when you send somebody this postcard and they don't return it, that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean a whole lot. There's all sorts of reasons why they might not return that postcard. Um, and, in fact, the statistics show that very few people do. The other dissent was written just by herself, by Justice Sonia Sotomayor, and um, hers looked at the, the, the bigger issues about voter su- suppression and uh, essentially said this procedure uh, puts a burden on people when they're trying to go vote, and uh, therefore we should be very skeptical of it. So how will this play out in politics and in the midterm elections? So there are about six states that have fairly similar procedures that might have been at risk uh, had uh, the court gone the other way. Uh, those states will be able to, to, to use their procedures. Now, it's not a huge number of people that are affected, but in some states like Ohio that can be closely divided, it can make a difference. So two years ago, uh, a federal appeals court uh, uh, barred Ohio from using its law and, in fact, counted the ballots, ordered the counting of the ballots of 7,500 people who otherwise would have been barred under this procedure. Um, and it's easy to imagine in a close election that that could make, make a difference in, in some uh, closely divided states. Greg, this was a case where the Obama administration had opposed Ohio's law, and then the Trump administration reversed that position and supported Ohio. It was Democrats versus Republicans as far as the amicus briefs of the states are concerned. Why was this case a proxy for the partisan fight over the country's election rules? Well, it, you know, it, it was what, what I, I mentioned before that Justice Sotomayor was talking about, that this notion that these uh, purging procedures are not there in order to, the, the argument that they're not there in order to protect against uh, voter fraud or anything like that, but to make it harder for people, in particular liberals and low-income people and racial minorities, to, to vote. And uh, it, it ends up sort of fitting into that, that battle over whether the bigger thing we should be worried about is voter suppression or voter fraud. We are in the home stretch of the Supreme Court term, and we're expecting some cases that have really been high profile and controversial. And this is the sixth time the liberals have voted this term as a block and have dissented as a block, rather. Does that portend future votes in controversial cases coming up? 
I'm, there will certainly be some future votes like that. There have also been some cases where the court has managed to gloss over a few differences. Uh, for example, the Masterpiece case, for the, the, the Colorado Baker case from last week, where two justices from the liberals were able to join uh, with their more conservative colleagues in the majority. Um, it, it There are cases like the travel ban, cases like uh, mandatory union fees, where, and cases like partisan gerrymandering, where you have to imagine there will be some sort of ideological divide on the court, whether that ends up being five to four or whether they can uh, come up with a broader coalition. That remains to be seen, of course. So we have uh, the term where Justice Neil Gorsuch has replaced the late Justice Antonin Scalia. Do you see any any change here, or do you see just the same 5-4 split that we saw for so many years? It, it's pretty much the same 5-4 split. Um, you know, and, and if, if, if Justice Gorsuch resembles anybody, it's probably Justice Scalia in terms of his vote pattern. So the, the one time where he did join the liberals uh, was a case uh, involving uh, a deportation provision where he, perhaps as Justice Scalia would have said, this provision is not specific enough to uh, to apply it to somebody. It's too vague um, uh, in order to, to, it's too vague to be used to justify uh, deporting somebody or subjecting them to mandatory deportation. And that's the kind of vote Justice Scalia may have taken, may have cast as well. But basically when we're looking at, the, at most of the cases that are dividing the court along ideological lines, he is, Justice Gorsuch which is very much join, uh, joining his conservative colleagues. All right. Well, Greg, we're going to be hearing from you on Thursday again because the court announced today that it's going to be having session, have, issuing decisions then as well. Thanks so much. That's Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Store. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.